Good morning. Are you ready to study God's Word together? Get your Bibles out and let's open it up to the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. As we continue our series on the seven churches of Asia, which we've entitled, What Would Jesus Say? What would Jesus say? Jesus himself could stand before us again in the flesh and literally uh, take a place behind a lectern and just share with the body what it was that was on his heart. What might he say? Well, here's the good news. The good news is that he did that in a very real way to seven churches in uh, the book of the Revelation that were in Asia. And as we mentioned to you before, uh, as he was sharing, that of these seven churches, two of them received commendation. They were doing a good job. They uh, received really no rebuke, no admonishment. But there was another church, one church, Ephesus, that while it did many things right, Jesus said there was still one thing they needed to address. And so we could say that three churches were ostensibly doing a pretty good job. But unfortunately, there were four churches that just weren't cutting the mustard, so to speak. And he had some fairly severe admonishment to give to these four. And we'd mentioned last time how it's almost as if we're on this roller coaster ride. We start off pretty good at a high mark, and then we begin to dip down to the bottom of the barrel. And this morning we're at the fifth stop in our seven church tour there in Asia at the church at Sardis. And to be candid, in my opinion, Sardis is about the bottom of the barrel. In fact, it, it, you'll begin to see here in just a moment or two that there wasn't much good going on at Sardis. And the Lord gives them ostensibly a, 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 the toughest, in my opinion, word of all the churches. Now, I want to be honest with you. If, if I could somehow, some way, navigate around Sardis and just go straight to Philadelphia, I would have done that. Philadelphia is a good church. It'll have a good word. There'll be some interesting things that we'll learn from Philadelphia. If I could avoid Sardis, I really would like to do that. But unfortunately, how many of you realize we just can't preach the happy verses? There are lots of happy verses, promises in the Bible, and for those of you that have been with me long enough know that I have spent an abundance of time proclaiming to you the promises of God and the abundance of God and I love to talk about the happy verses, but you just can't get the happy verses and miss the rest of the Word of God. We must get the whole counsel of God. And so we're going to have to spend some time listening to a severe admonishment to the church at Sardis. And the reason we need to do that is so that we do not enter into what they entered into with regards to their relationship with God and end up in the same position. We can all say as we listen, you know, potentially, thank God, that's not me. But if it is you, then you need to be honest enough to say, that's me, and do what the Lord says and get back on track. And so Sardis is going to be a tough word. And if you're a guest with us today, I just want you to know, be sure you come back next week because we're going to have just a great uh, word out of Philadelphia. But today we've got to deal with the whole counsel of God. You cannot... Just pick and choose out of the scripture what it is you want and what you don't want. And today we stop at Sardis. Sardis, as I've come to learn, was a fortress city. 
Some called it a citadel. Now, we have a citadel here in Charleston, South Carolina, that is a college, and indeed, at one time, it was a fortress as, as well. And the word citadel means fortress. And Sardis was a fortress city. It sat on top of a mountain overlooking a valley. It had a glorious history of, of battles and victories. And through those battles, they became quite wealthy. And it became a great city, very well-to-do. But by the time John receives this revelation from Jesus, Sardis, the city, had become soft. Its citizenry had basically become lazy. It was nothing like it used to be. In fact, all that it was was a, a monument or a remnant of that which had taken place. Nothing worse than becoming a monument. And unfortunately, the softness and the laziness of Sardis itself apparently began to creep and infect the church that was located there to where the members and the body that was represented there in Sardis had become soft as well. And so the Lord begins to speak to Sardis and for them he has a very difficult word because Sardis, to be honest, was at the bottom of the barrel. And it might be the toughest word that he has to give to all of the churches. Now we might debate that, but for me, it's a pretty tough word and I think you're going to understand why here in just a second. But if you have your Bibles, open it up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin speaking to you what I, to, on what I've entitled as our lesson, Deciding Not to Be Dead. Deciding Not to Be Dead. Revelation 3, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. What would he say? Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive. Now that's interesting. I'm going to stop. Apparently they have some form or fashion of name. In other words, they're using the name of Christ. They are using the term Christian. They have a name that they're alive. If you're a Christian, that means you're alive. And so they're using that name. But the Lord says, but you are dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And the word perfect there does not mean errorless. It doesn't mean that somehow they had stumbled or they, they didn't come up to this sense of perfection because who could be perfect before a holy God? But the biblical term perfect doesn't mean errorless. It means complete. So he says, uh, I've not found you to be complete. I've not found you to have finished all that you needed to finish and what's been started. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch... I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. For you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's good news. Verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And then here's the next phrase that it might be good for you to underline. Just underline it in your Bible, because it's one that I've got to deal with. I cannot, I cannot skip around it. He says, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the churches. And again, our lesson today is deciding not to be dead. Now, Sardis is a little bit different than the other churches we've heard about so far in our journey. Uh, Jesus says that if they do not address what is going on or, or what's happening within their midst, if they don't address what he's saying to them, this is what he says. He says, I'll blot out your name from the book of life. I'll blot out your name from the book of life. Now, I started to study that phrase, blot out. And in the Amplified Bible, interestingly enough, they use the term erase. Erase. If you study the literal Greek, you'll find that it means to wipe out. And so he is saying here that if they don't address, if they don't overcome, if they don't, if they don't begin to do some things that they need to be doing, he says, I'm going to erase your name from the book of life. Now, I need to stop here for just a moment and tell you that I'm going to navigate some doctrine that uh, I think is misunderstood, a lot of times mistaught, overlooked, and needs to just have some clarity brought so we're not walking in confusion. Now, I just want to tell you right up front and be honest that whenever we deal with the concepts of eternal security, your security as a believer, if you've talked to me in private or if any time you've heard me teach it, it has been really my position to not argue with folk with regards to wherever it is they've landed. The reason being is, is that everybody's already made up their mind. There are very few people on this subject that haven't already made up their mind, haven't already become just intractable in their positions, and they refuse to be teachable or to listen to what the whole counsel of God says. So I just want to share with you today that when I'm all said and done and you listen to some concepts that I'm going to give to you with regards to where I've landed and why I've landed there, I don't want you coming up to me after service, opening up your Bible, showing me all your particular verses from whatever tangent you represent, showing me how wrong or whatever it is you think that I am. I know your verses. I know what they mean. I, I know where you're going. I know John Calvin. I know uh, Jacobus Arminius, the Dutch theologian that argued his whole concept. I know. I've studied it. I've read the original journals. I understand what I'm teaching here. So I understand this. I may not change what you already think. You may not change where I'm landing. But I can say this. I'm being teachable on this subject. The reason I say that is because I grew up in eternal insecurity. I mean, I grew up in a denominational system that had usually a Sunday morning, Sunday evening service. And it was very possible that you could lose your salvation between the AM and the PM service. I mean, one bad thought, one unthought through word, um, one attitude. I mean, it was, I lived in that sort of insecurity. And, and, and let me just say to you, I don't want to live in that kind of insecurity, nor am I going back to that. But at the same time, my problem is, is that there are people preaching this unconditional 
a predestinatory, eternal security once and for all. And they're preaching it in such a way that they're letting people believe they can live what they want and do what they want and thumb their nose at God without repercussion. And that's not biblical. Now, that may be up your tree in the Bible Belt of the South, but I'm going to be up your tree a little bit. I understand that what I grew up in was not biblical, nor was it right, but I'm here to declare that a lot of what gets taught today at the other end of the spectrum is just as wrong. And here's the key to the whole deal. I'm not looking to be a Calvinist or an Arminian. I'm looking to be a scriptural believer. I want to know what the Bible says in totality, not just what makes me feel good all the time. And so we're going to have to navigate some interesting waters here for just a minute. And you need to understand something right off the bat as you read this particular passage concerning Sardis. The only way your name can get erased from the book is sometime it was put in the book. I've heard people say to me before, they say, well, you know, probably those folks, you know, they, were, they weren't really saved. Well, you know, all I have to say is this, if Sardis... There have been some names put in the book of life. And now Jesus says, if you, don't, if you don't straighten up some things here and fly right in some areas, I'm going to erase the name that I put originally in the book of life. Now, that makes sense, right? I mean, that's what he says. He says, I will blot it out. Now, here's the question. The question is, what happened to warrant such a severe word or repercussion from the Lord? You know, let me give you an example. If I were walking through a grocery store and I were pulling cans off the shelf and I was wanting to buy some vegetables, let's say some canned vegetables for a meal I was going to have that night, and I pulled off a can of corn and I'm looking at it, it's, uh, you know, whatever it, you know, the grocery store brand, a can of corn, and, uh, you know, I purchase it, take it home, open up the can, and all of a sudden when I open up the can, I find inside of the can baked beans. Now, how many of you know that could be frustrating? I didn't want baked beans. I wanted corn. Corn was what would fit with my menu, not the baked beans. Now, that in and of itself might seem somewhat insignificant, but let's ratchet it up another notch. Let's say I'm going down through the aisle of the store, and I pick up my can of corn, and I open up my can of corn, and inside I find a dead mouse. Yeah. Can you imagine a dead mouse in your can of corn? Well, not only would that disgust you, probably make some of the ladies scream, maybe some of the guys too, but you'd probably go litigate so you could get your millions. Because we don't want anything dead, like a dead mouse or a dead rat or some dead animal within our can of corn. And, and more than that, whatever the label on the can says, we want it to represent what really is on the inside of that can. So you don't want to get a can of beans or a can of corn and pop it open and find something inside that wasn't labeled on the outside of the can. Now, having said that, can you imagine what God must feel like when there are people who are wearing the label Christian and outside of the label 
they're saying, I am a Christian. They are using his name. But when you open up the can and you look inside of this can called Christian, the Lord says, I see something that is dead. You say, you label yourself Christian, but in reality, what's inside of you is dead. Now remember what I said, I know there are people who automatically will run in their mind because they automatically go to doctrine and they'll say to themselves, well, you know, they just, they just weren't really saved. They, they just kind of culturally got it and they never really, really got saved. Listen, if that were true, how then could their name have been written down in the book of life in order for it now to get erased? If that be true, listen to me, if that be true, how could they hold fast to that which they supposedly never had. If, if that be true, if they were never saved, how could they remember how they originally received the gospel if they really didn't receive it to begin with? Do, do you see what I mean? You just can't brush it off and say, well, truth of the matter is they just weren't really saved. No, apparently they were because they knew how to receive. They knew how to hold fast. They knew, it says here, to strengthen the things that remain. They understood these things. Oh, let me tell you for sure that they had embraced the cross and the Christ. I'm just here to tell you, we have, we have so doctrinalized everything that we have missed what the Bible is teaching. I'm all for sound doctrine. The Bible says we're to have sound doctrine. You should have a sound theology. But our problem is, most of us know more about Calvin and we know more about a, being a Baptist or, or being a charismatic or being, you know, an Episcopalian or a Catholic and we're so inundated with being whatever we are that we haven't become a scriptural Christian. And that's the part we need to become because that's the only thing that's going to matter when it comes to walking up to the Lord and being received by Him. Now the question is, if that be true, how could this occur? How could this happen in a believer? Now, I, I want you to watch the screen overhead because I'm going to put a progression up on the screen. And in fact, it might better be termed a digression. Because I believe that every human being goes through a series of steps which eventually leads them either to repentance and, and an embracing of the cross or it leads them to a place where they are utterly alienated from God. And if you can begin to understand the progression or the digression of how this works in a person, it'll help you understand a little bit of what's taking place here. And I need you to really, really connect with me right now. Don't go off somewhere. Don't write me off because it's not fitting your schematic or theology for the moment. Just listen to me for a minute and you can dismiss me in about 30 minutes if that's what you choose to do. But don't miss what God might be saying here if He's speaking to you in some particular way. You don't want to miss that. So let's talk about this digression. It can happen in a person. It could even happen in a church as far as that goes. But let's use for an example like um, a child. Let's just, let's just look at a child who is old enough to know right from wrong. And um, it's about dinner time. And you're looking at your child. And you know in just a few minutes you're going to have dinner already. They're going to come to the table. You want them to eat a nourishing, complete meal. And, uh, and so you're instructing them 
what they need to do in the last few minutes, maybe an hour or so, before they sit down and have a meal. And you tell them, because they're looking at this, this cookie jar that's sitting on the counter, and they're eyeing it with that look that you've seen before that says, as soon as you leave the room, I want to get in that cookie jar. But in your heart, you're saying, because it's for their best interest, no, do not get in the cookie jar. It will ruin your meal. It, it, it will not give you what you need in order to grow up right. It, it, is, it is something that's just not good for you. Keep your hand out of the cookie jar. Do you understand, little Johnny, you are not to put your hand in the cookie jar and to get you out a cookie. Now, mom or dad, we've got to leave the room right now. We're not going to be with you to watch you at all times, but I'm telling you, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. It'll ruin your meal. Now, you know right now we've got an interesting scenario developing. A child who knows right from wrong, looking at something that they might really want to check into called a cookie. How does this work when it comes to sin? How does, it come, how does this work when it comes to, to digressing to the place where you finally are written off? Now, now let me just give you these steps. Number one, it's curiosity. All sin starts with curiosity. It catches your attention. There's something drawing about it. It's as if that cookie jar, let's say, begins to talk to you. Open me. Get a cookie. Enjoy. I don't know if you've ever seen a cat who, uh, after you've laid a box or a bag on the ground, that cat will look at that bag or that box and kind of evaluate it, circle it, until finally they'll jump in it or they'll get in it. And the reason they do that is because they have such curiosity they can't let it go. And of course, that's where we get the phrase, curiosity kills the cat. Exactly. Curiosity is where death starts. And all of us have a curiosity with regards to sin. Once curiosity takes place, number two, your conscience awakens. Your conscience awakens. There's this inner alarm system that starts to go off as you're curious about the cookie jar. And the alarm system as it's going off is alarming inside of you going, should I or shouldn't I? Should I do this or should I not do this? And you're awakened to the fact that there's something that you might like to explore, but you aren't really sure whether or not you should explore it, which reaches number three, the visualization of the outcome. Now, I call this window shopping. If you've ever been window shopping, you know what that is like, especially ladies sometimes. Maybe you'll get your husband, maybe a boyfriend to go window shopping with you. You don't have any money perhaps to buy things with, but you'll just walk through the mall and you'll look at things and you'll just dream and envision and imagine in your window shopping and uh, you're wondering what that might be like to own that or what it might be like to wear that. And that's what begins to happen. You begin to visualize what that cookie will begin to taste like and you begin inside to work through the concepts of will the pleasure of eating that cookie outweigh any of the problems I might incur by taking that cookie. Now, I understand at this particular point, we're all sitting there going, well, it's just a cookie. But the problem is your, your authority, your Lord said, don't touch the cookie. I understand a cookie in and of itself is not bad, but what's your cookie? 
Some of your cookies are the internet. Some of your cookies are magazines and, and other pornographic materials. Some of your cookies are your drugs and your alcohol. Some of your, some of your cookies are just your, your rebellion to parents. And, and we, cookies just represent all kinds of things that God says you ought not enter into. And so you begin to visualize at this particular point, should I, shouldn't I, does the pleasure I'll receive from doing it outweigh any of the problems? Number four, you get to reasoning. Reasoning, you develop your lists of pros and cons. Well, here are the pros if I eat the cookie, and here are the cons if I eat the cookie. And you begin to get in a debate with yourself, pros and cons, pros and cons. And for many people... What happens at this particular place is they make the decision to violate what they know to do is right. That's what Hebrews 10 says when it says a willful transgression of a known law of God. They willfully transgress what they know is, is right and what the precept was and what was expected of them. Number five, violation. They decide to do the sin. They just decide to put their hand in the cookie jar and they're going to get them a cookie. And as soon as they get the cookie, as soon as they take the bite, just like Adam and Eve in the garden when they partook of the fruit, number six rolls in, and right after the violation, number six hits, and that's what we call guilt. Guilt. Because the conscience, as your alarm system was going off, it was warning you, and now that you violated the warning of your conscience, you partook of the sin, guilt enters the picture, your conscience says... That's not what you were supposed to do. And the damage is being done to your system right now as you're partaking of this thing that you were told not to partake of and guilt enters into the picture. Now, hear me again. In the society that you and I live in, we live in an era that looks at us and says, whatever else happens, I don't want anybody making me feel guilty. And so we'll go to therapy in order that the therapist, the psychiatrist, psychologist, we're wanting them to help us absolve or work through or get rid of the guilt we are feeling in our life. Now, hear me, there is guilt that comes to our life that is inappropriate. The Bible calls that condemnation. Any guilt that you receive that has been repented of uh, any sin, the guilt from sin that, that you have done, uh, that has been repented of, that it's been taken to the cross, that you've walked away from it, you've sought forgiveness from it, you've encountered God, you've been cleansed by His blood, and, and you walk away and the enemy still wants to make you feel guilty for that, that's called condemnation, and that is inappropriate guilt. And the Bible says clearly, now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're going to feel guilty. But if you've come to the cross, you've received forgiveness, you've repented from your sin, indeed, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no more condemnation. Praise God. But if that sin has not been taken to the cross, if it's not been repented, if it's not had the blood covered, then the problem is, is that you're going to feel guilty. And if someone were to come to me and they were to say, 
Pastor, I just murdered somebody. Or, Pastor, I just uh, fooled around on my wife. Or, you know, I, I, I did something egregious by way of sin. And I feel guilty. And they look at me and say, I don't want to feel guilty anymore. I just, what can I do to get rid of the guilt? The first thing I'd say is, well, praise God, you feel guilty. You should feel guilty. That's good guilt. That's called conviction. Conviction is good guilt. That's when God loves you so much that by His Spirit, He begins to cause your conscience to feel guilty over that which you are doing. If you don't feel guilty, something's wrong. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But then you can, you can deal with it because it's a conviction that says deal with this and it is at this point people come to a crossroad. Now whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're a believer, backslid, whatever spiritual status you're in at the moment, I believe anyone and everyone can go through this progression and at, as it, it is at this point that they come to what I call a crossroad. And the crossroad is you've got a choice to make with regards to your guilt. What am I going to do with this guilt? That's number seven. My response to guilt. Do I repent or do I ignore it and just try to go on? Now that's a critical choice at this particular point. Because the Bible tells us if I repent, I can be restored. If I choose to seek forgiveness and repent, now that's the key word. I just can't say, oh, sorry, I did it, Lord. You know, I just kind of stumble, bumbled my way. No, you repent. You acknowledge repentance means I agree with what God has said on a matter. If God said it was wrong, you agree with God. It's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And that's what repentance means. Repentance means I now agree with God. I turn from what it is that I had done and I go a different direction. And the Bible says you can be restored. If I walk in the light as He is in the light, His blood will cleanse me from all sin and all unrighteousness. But what happens if I choose to ignore that, that guilt and deal with it in a way that just sort of pushes it off? Well, number eight comes along. And what happens is you enter into what I call spiritual compromise. You become, as a human being, compromised. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about ready to say. You may continue to do religious things. You may continue to do spiritual rituals. You may still go to church. You may even still read your Bible. You may, you may try to pray. You may go through all of these things. But here's the problem. The Bible says that, that through one man death entered in. It, it, through sin death entered into the equation. The wages of sin is death. So the minute sin enters into the equation that is not dealt with, that is not appropriately rendered inoperative, you've got death working in your system. So now here you are willfully committing sin, ignoring what needs to be done to deal with it. Death has entered into the system and because death has now entered into your system, it's beginning to bring compromise to you, which brings you to number nine, which is frustration. Because you have, by your choice, Open the door to the enemy. Now, listen to me. It's not God that put you in this predicament. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God didn't put you in this predicament. Don't you be mad at God right now. God didn't do this. God didn't open the door. God didn't put his hand in the cookie jar. God wasn't, wasn't waving the cookie underneath your nose. 
you decided you were going to put your hand in the cookie jar, you opened the door to the enemy, you decided you didn't want to go to the cross, you decided that you didn't want to repent, you decided that you weren't going to seek forgiveness and the cleansing blood, and all of a sudden things are not working like you thought they should in your life. And what happens is that out of your frustration, you begin to manifest certain things that probably indicate your inappropriate response. Things like anger. Anger. You get even angry at, 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 at God. You get angry at the preacher. You get angry at other Christians. Because, because you think somehow they don't get you. But the problem is you don't get you. You are in that state because you've not done what you've needed to do. Then what happens if you go a little further comes number 10, justification. Now, I'm not talking about the justification that comes when you're born again. I'm talking the justification where you begin to justify yourself. You blame and shift, shift the discussion other directions. You look at others and you say, they, they, they are the problem. Or here's another one what Christians do all the time. They'll look around at everyone else in the church and they'll say, well, they get to do it. Why can't I do it? Well, they don't, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any repercussion in their life and they go to a church that doesn't seem to mind if they do that and they do this and how come everyone else gets to do it but I don't get to do it? Why not me? Here's the problem. The problem is God told you not to put your hand in the cookie jar. Now, I don't know what God told them. He may have told them to keep their hand out of the cookie jar. In fact, if it's in his word, he told us all to keep our hand out of that cookie jar. But here's the problem. The problem is they may be going through these very same things you're going through. You just don't get to see it. You're feeling yourself, but you don't see everything they're going through. Which leads to number 11, argumentation. You begin to debate. You want to prove. You want to convince everyone else that... The sin was somehow approved of or right. In fact, I've watched people who actually become advocates for it. They become stubborn in it. I've, I've listened to crazy things. I've, I've listened to people uh, give arguments. Listen to me. This is one that's happened since I've been in Charleston. They looked and said I was a, a false prophet. I was a, a, a false preacher because I didn't preach from the 1611 King James authorized version of the Bible. And you couldn't get saved unless you were reading the authorized version of the Bible. But the problem was they didn't mind, they didn't mind having sex in an unmarried state with their girlfriend and living with her. No, but you better read out of the King James Version. That is called deception. That is, that is called blindness. That, that, that is called silliness. And so suddenly they look and they say, this is all right, this sin, which the Bible calls fornication and sexual immorality, this is okay, but you better read out of the King James Version. Is that not the silliest thing you've ever heard? And then comes number 12. 12 is what I call legitimization. And the key phrase here is, I want you to listen very carefully now to the word I'm about ready to use. They practice practice. They practice putting their hand in the cookie jar. Now, I want you to hear very carefully what I'm beginning to say. The Bible's very clear. It says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So listen to me. If, if you think that I'm preaching that somebody can't sin, I'm not preaching that. I think anybody can potentially sin. 
I think anybody can. I can, you can, we all can. The Bible's clear about that. But there's a difference between stumbling into sin. There's a difference between weakness of the flesh and, and finding yourself sliding even into sin as you're struggling or, or fighting or battling. The, the, being ensnared even. I, I, I would give that there's all different concepts of how one can get into sin that can happen just on the basis of being a human being. But here's where we uh, are going to differ just a little bit. Is that there, there is that moment when you're no longer stumbling. It's not a weak moment. It's not something that you were just ensnared. You made a poor decision. You didn't see it. You were ignorant. But you start to practice it. You know exactly what you're doing. You practice it. It's a practicing aspect of your life. There's... There's no conviction anymore. You practice it. There's no challenge anymore. You practice it. There's nothing anymore. You just practice it. It's no big deal. It's a practice in your life. And what that eventually will lead you to is number 13, that which the Bible says is called reprobation. Reprobation. And that is the biblical word for being turned over. In fact, in the literal Greek, uh, what the word says is that not, not to be agreed with or not to be endorsed. In other words, when the Bible says that God turned them over to a reprobate mind, it means that God will not approve of, He will not uh, affirm, He will not endorse the mentality that is existing in that person that is causing them to practice that sin. And so what that means is, is that they, they've turned over to a mindset that practices this sin, practices this death, and God says, I'm turning you over. I'm not going to fool with you anymore. I won't endorse it, and I'm not going to approve of it. And you can begin to understand, I would hope, how God all of a sudden says, when He turns people over to a reprobate mind, that it's at this particular point that whether or not they said anything with their mouth, that, you know, a lot of people never say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, but what they say by virtue of their practice is that I'm not that anymore. So you can begin to understand why the Bible says certain things that are very important for us to touch on here for just a moment. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel 18. I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture that is the most amazing portion of the Bible that rarely gets read. But I'm going to read it to you right now. Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning with verse 23. Listen to this. It says here, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? Now that's a great question, isn't it? Does God have pleasure when people die? Does God pleasure in the fact that, that that there are going to be people who die and even die and go to hell. Does God pleasure in that? That's a great question. Because oftentimes it's asked, is it not? I mean, I mean how could God do that? I mean, why, why would God do that? And, and the question is, does God have pleasure that the wicked would die and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Now listen. He says, but when a righteous man, notice that word, righteous man, turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? 
Isn't that a great question? So in other words, if a, if a person who says they're a Christian and they love God and they say that they're righteous and they go through all this stuff, but yet they do everything the wicked person does, will he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. But listen, verse 25, yet you say, well, the way of the Lord is not fair. How many of you would have heard that? The way of the Lord is not fair. He says, hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. Yee, yee, yee. Whiny, whiny, whiny. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. It says in verse 31, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Do you hear that out of Ezekiel? God says this. He says that there comes a place, and you've got to understand, even in the Hebrew, we're not talking about a guy that just stumbles along or he just bumbles ignorantly into sin or he didn't know that's what God expected of him and you know we're not talking about that we're not talking about e even a weak moment when he was struggling and trying to stay on target we're not talking about that what we're talking about is somebody who practices practices now you're going to understand why Jesus said what he did in Matthew chapter 7 in Matthew chapter 7 I've had folks just do you know, acrobatics through this because they didn't understand it. But I'm going to underline a word for you, for you here that will help you understand this. Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now hear me. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So these are people who are confessing him to be Lord. But he says, Not everyone who says that shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Listen. There are going to be people, you may even know them, that will say they are Christian. There are going to be people who say they love God, people who will have confessed Jesus as Lord. They will have come to the front. They will have prayed the prayer, signed the card, raised their hand. They will have done those things, but they will not do the will of the Father. And he says in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? I mean, we're talking, they're going to be folks that are supposedly spirit-filled. Cast out devils in your name. Done many wonders in your name. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen, you who, what? Practice. 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 Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Practice. 
practice in Hebrews chapter 6. There's, there's some tough words in the book of Hebrews as well. Now, I'm just sharing this with you because it's important that you understand. I'm not, I'm not yanking this just out of one particular passage. But it says here in Hebrews 6, 4, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away. Now, in verse 6 here, it says, if they fall away. And you have to understand the Greek construction because it would have been understood in that particular era very clearly. And if you study it, it talks, it's in a continuous tense, which means if they fall away. We're not talking about, again, somebody just stumbles, somebody ignorantly just sort of, you know, uh, wanders into sin. They, they struggle. It's, it's, it's just something they're, they're, they're fighting with. We're not talking. I mean, God's mercy and grace and patience is, is a wonderful thing. And He will walk with you. It's, as long as you need to walk with He will walk with you. But here's the deal. There's going to come a moment, and I can't judge it. Your parents can't judge it. Your spouse can't judge it. Your friends can't judge it. Nobody can judge it, but I'll assure you, God can judge it. Because it is God who knows the ways and the thoughts and the intents of a man's mind and heart. But there can come a moment when you... You think you've fooled everyone else, but you haven't fooled God because you're practicing. You are practicing the waywardness. And if you practice what is unrighteous, listen to me, if you practice what is unrighteous, you are willingly and knowingly forsaking the sacrifice that stands here in Jesus Christ that empowers you to break the bondages of sin. If you practice something, you're walking away from the very thing that says, I can free you from that. Hallelujah. There's a difference between somebody just being immature and ignorant and somebody who just said, you know what, I'm going to do what I want to do and I don't give a rip that that man died on a cross in order to set me free from it. 2 Peter 2.20 2 Peter 2.20 It says, For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the proverb, A dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So you got to understand what's going on here at Sardis. Sardis is, is, is practicing, willingly, endorsing, walking away from that which they know they ought not be doing. And Jesus says, he says, if you don't repent, if you don't change your way of thinking right now, if you don't begin to agree with the Lord on what I have said the Lord, imagine me speaking for the Lord. He says, if, if you don't agree with what I've said to you, he said, you're going to get erased. You're going to get erased. Now listen to me. Listen to me. I, I have those folks that have been taught security to such a place that, that they get very upset with me at this particular moment. I want you to listen to me very carefully. 
This is, this is what I believe. Somebody said, well, how do you deal with all these other verses? Let me tell you how I've come to the conclusion the Bible is preached. When I get to a verse that says, no one shall be able to pluck me out of the Father's hand, that's exactly what I'll preach. Nobody can pluck me out of the Father's hand. Let me tell you, I'm secure today. I, I, because you know what? Nobody, none of you can pluck me out of the Father's hand. This world can't pluck me out of the Father's hand. There's nothing that can pluck me out of the Father's hand. But you know what? If I want to jump out of the Father's hand, I, I can do that. So you see, I don't want to do that though. I'm as secure, I'm just as secure as can be. And anybody that gets irritated with me when I look at them and they say, that they're, and they say well, you're teaching works righteousness and you're making me feel insecure. I will, I will tell you this almost as a 100% fact. They've got practicing sin going on in their life that they don't want to deal with. Those that are secure in Jesus and enjoying it are those that are being faithful and walking in it. The Bible says if I walk in the light as He is in the light, His blood will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm just as secure as can be. Just as secure as I could be. You know, Jesus said, I've had people say, well, you know, the Lord said that, that, that He would not lose any that the Father gave Him. Well, that's true. That, that he won't lose. Jesus won't lose one of them. But that doesn't mean you can't turn around and say sayonara. Because let me tell you, there were disciples that followed him that did exactly that. I'll tell you this much. Israel did exactly that. They turned around and said, we don't want anything to do with you. And Jesus said this. Because of that, I'm going to transfer the kingdom to a nation that's going to produce the fruit of it. He said that in Matthew 21. So we need to begin to understand that if we love the Lord... Why would you want out? If you really love the Lord and you're trying, I'm not talking about just in your own energy, but you're letting His cross and His grace empower you to live victoriously. I mean, why would you deny Him if you love Him? But why would you practice sin if you love Him? I don't believe His commandments are burdensome if I love Him. I don't think they're burdensome. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling constricted in my life. I'm not feeling like I'm missing anything. I mean, we don't serve God out of duty, but we serve Him out of love. In fact, Jude even said that we were to keep ourselves. Listen to this. This is Jude verse 21. He said, keep yourself in the love of God. So I have a responsibility to keep myself in the love of God. But the key here is the word practice. Practice. Do we all sin? Sure, all of us are going to sin. I'm quite sure that I could get done preaching, walk out into the foyer, greet somebody, and just ignorantly, accidentally, I, I would hope, you know, maybe offend somebody. It wasn't right. I, I, I shouldn't have done it, but it wasn't something that I'm practicing or trying to do. But did I do it? I, I'm sure that that's something that could be done. So are we all imperfect? Yes, we're all imperfect. Are we subject to the flesh and to carnality? At times, we certainly are. But here's the deal. You don't have to practice it. And at Sardis, they were practicing it. And Jesus said, unless you repent, I'll blot you out of the book. Now, that's tough. That's tough. Now, here again, I'm just going to tell you one more time. Do I think you can just lose it by one bad attitude or... Do I think you can lose it just because you stumble bumbled around once or twice? I, I'll be honest with you. My feeling is this. I believe there are probably periods of grace where people have walked away. 
And they said, I'm not sure I want a part of it. And I don't know that God isn't extending and reaching to them. But there's somewhere in there, and I'm not the one that measures it, finds it, or applies it. I'm glad that I'm not God in this regard. But there's going to be a moment that God says, as far as I'm concerned, you're practicing it. And I've met enough people, known enough people who have given me personal testimony to this fact. That they had reached a place where they heard the voice of the Lord. Or God had reached out to them in some way. And basically said to them that this was their moment. And if they didn't turn it around and get themselves right, God wasn't going to deal with them anymore. Because they'd been practicing, practicing sin. Now, how do you break free from this? You know, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So how do we break free? I'm going to go through this very, very fast. Number one, it's time we woke up. Romans 13, 11, Paul said that it's time we cast off the deeds of darkness, that we shook ourselves out of that stuff, and we woke up. Woke up. It's time to wake up, open our eyes, see rightly and see righteously. It is time to begin to cast that sleepy spirit off of us and begin to awaken that we can be alive again. Number two, Jesus says here to Sardis, he says, strengthen the things that remain. All right, so you haven't gotten everything right. You're practicing some things you ought not. But while you're repenting for the practicing, you need to strengthen the things that you've got under your belt, the things that remain before they die, he says. So if you've got a few things right, strengthen them. Get them solid in you so you can begin to have a basis by which you can begin to move forward again number three you need to determine to complete what you started it's time we got a determined spirit that if you gave your life to Jesus you need to determine that you're not just going to be a good starter but you're going to be a good finisher in fact the race is meaningless to those who are on the starting line the only key to the race are those that come across the finish line Are you going to be a finisher? You've got to determine to complete what you started. You've got to determine that you're going to run the race to the end. Matthew 24 says that he who endures to the end shall be saved. There's going to be something about endurance and pressing on. And you've got to have a little determination. And just because you walk down front and you raise the hand, pray the prayer, sign the card, and then you don't know why it works out there, it may be because you just didn't get determined enough. And you need to get some determination in you. That I'm going to live out my commitments and I'm going, to, I'm going to see this thing through. Number four, you need to receive things like you did in the beginning with faith and expectancy. You need to begin to receive even this morning the things that I'm sharing with you with faith and expectancy. You've got to receive again that the cross can set you free. You've got to receive again that Jesus can light your fire. You've got to receive again that you can be filled with His victory and there's nothing so great that comes against you that you can't overcome and live above. Receive. you got to receive things again with faith and expectancy and then that word He gives that church again. Number five, you got to hold fast. I didn't say slim fast. I said hold fast. Got to hold fast. Hold fast. There are times the best thing that you can do and the only thing you can do is just simply hold fast. Hold fast. I'm not, I may not be going forward, but I'm sure enough not going backward. I'm just going to hold fast. And this morning I want to ask you this. I want to ask you, we may not be as a church, the church at Sardis, but that doesn't mean you don't have that Sardis spirit trying to jump on you and crawl on you. 
My question to you this morning is this. Is this your day? Is this your moment? To say, Lord, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done practicing. Practicing. Practicing my sin. I, I, I'm practicing putting my hand in the cookie jar. I don't know what your cookie is. What's your cookie? What's your cookie? Come on now. Is your, is your cookie late night television that's just raunchy? Is that your cookie? Is your cookie some internet pornography? What's your cookie? Come on now. What's your cookie, ladies? Romance novels? What's your cookie? Maybe no one knows what your cookie is. What's your cookie? Come on now. Be honest. What's your cookie? I mean, what's, what's, that, what's the sin that you just you practice and you, you refuse? You refuse to bring it to the cross and let Jesus not just forgive it, not, not just atone for it, but to set you free and to break that bondage in you so that you don't practice that thing anymore. What's your cookie? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that there's something that tastes better than that cookie. It's the powers of the age to come. I'll tell you there's something that tastes better than, 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 than that cookie that, that you perceive to be so great in your life. It's, it's, it's that feeling of, of cleanness. I'll never forget years ago. Years ago, I put it on my refrigerator. I was going through some weight loss. And I put it on the refrigerator so it would always see me before I'd open up the refrigerator. And it said this, feeling, the feeling of being thin is better than the feeling of eating the food. That's exactly what it is. The feeling of being clean before God is better than the feeling of putting that cookie in your mouth. That cookie's just a silly illustration, isn't it? But whatever it is that's getting practiced, it's not silly. It's not silly. In fact, it's so serious, it can erase your name. I encourage you this morning. Would everyone stand with me, please? I encourage you this morning in just a minute, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you here in just a moment to let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Let Him begin to touch you. Let Him begin to speak to you. I'm not your judge. I can't judge you. I don't know where you are before God. I'll be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not here to change your doctrine. You, 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 you can be a Calvinist for all I care. You can be an Arminian for all I care. I, I, I'm just trying to preach the scriptures to you. And I know the verses. You come show them to me and I'll shake my head and say, yep, that's there. And I can show you other verses that will seem to be the exact opposite. And I'm just here to tell you this, this, what I've taught you this morning, I've become convinced is the truth to where, to where people need to understand they are, they are secure in Jesus Christ. As, all, as, as, as He empowers me and loves me and walks with me and as I walk with Him, and I'm not walking away from it, He keeps me secure. But the minute I make the mental choice, to practice, practice that which he says is abhorrent, that which he says is unrighteous. That's the moment that I decide that he no longer can be my sacrifice. Maybe that doesn't fit your doctrine. Maybe it's time you changed your doctrine. Maybe it's time you reconsidered it. Like I said, I, 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 I've talked to a good Calvinists and good Arminians and the fact of the matter is when their heart's right with God everybody lands in the same location let's just live all out and right for Jesus so with every head bowed and every eye closed how about you how about you will you decide this morning not to be dead